goes completely against the attitude of the believer to sin to get more grace. It goes completely against the attitude that from the, by the divine birth, that, that, nat, that supernatural work that's done in him by God. It goes completely against that nature to think that, you know, I can sin all I want because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Paul, listen, Paul is not saying that the believer admires righteousness. Paul is not saying that the believer desires righteousness. He's not even saying that the believer practices righteousness, which of course they do. But that's not Paul's words. He is not saying that a believer ought to be a slave of righteousness. He is saying, church, that every believer by divine creation is made a slave of righteousness and cannot be anything else. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Chapter six. One of the things that we that we learn uh, from this text, at least I hope you've learned from this text, is that for the believer, they are, there is no probation with God. There's no probation with God. Meaning this, we're never accepted by God conditionally. When God accepts us, we are not given a ninety day period of whether we're proven to be worth anything or not. When God accepts us, when He saves us. We, at that very moment, become dead to sin. That very moment, instantaneously, we become buried with the old man. And at that very moment, we are given the same resurrection power that that raised Christ from the dead. We're given that same power to live and to walk in newness of life. We don't get these things as we progress in our sanctification. We get these things immediately. The moment you trust Christ, the moment that you're transferred from death to life, at that very instant, you are given, you are at that very moment dead to sin. It doesn't mean you don't sin, because we do, but it means that as we've been studying, that you are dead to the power of sin. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You've been saved from the power of sin. One day, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That's why Paul says that now is our salvation nearer than it it was when we first believed, meaning that we're closer to heaven now than we were when we first believed. So our salvation from the presence of sin is more real to us now than it was the day that we we were saved. But the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, the moment you're transferred from death to life, you at that very moment become dead to sin. And you are given resurrection power to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6. And we're going to start looking tonight at verse number 15. And we're going to read down through verse 23. Where Paul begins this second portion of chapter 6 in a similar way that he began the first portion of chapter 6. And that's by asking a rhetorical question. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? 
What's the answer to that? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield, and this is key, church, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of the flesh. For as ye have yielded yourselves servants to uncleanliness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Death. But now being made free from sin and become the servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to make your word clear to us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In his home community, no citizen of ancient Greece or Rome ever went to prison. The penalty for crimes was severe death, exile, confiscation of property, and heavy fines. There were no public prisons. If a man committed a murder, that man was handed over to the, to the family of the victim he murdered. They could kill him. They could take his property. Or they could just banish him, whatever they chose. Because prisons were maintained by private individuals. And in those prisons is where debtors were placed and where strangers who had committed crimes were placed until their case had been decided. And it was in such a prison that Paul and Silas were placed. And they were placed in this prison in Philippi under the charge of a jailer who was probably a very, very evil man. In fact, Socrates speaks of jailers as tyrants who treated the prisoners like slaves. So Paul and Silas are sitting in this prison, shackled, hands and feet. And listen, church, in the, in these prisons, they didn't just shackle your hands and feet to the, to the wall like you see in the movies. They disjointed you. Your legs and your arms were both pulled out of their sockets, pulled out of their joints, and then chained to the wall. So it was a very painful bondage. Well, as Paul and Silas sat there in that prison, you know the story from Acts 16. The Bible says that they sang praises to God at midnight. Then the earthquake came. And when the jailer came through, he saw all the prison doors had been flung open. And he assumed that the, all the prisoners had escaped. And the jailer, knowing that 
he was going to be executed for losing them, he drew his own sword with the intent of taking his own life. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 28, the Bible says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then, of course, in verse 31, what is Paul telling? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. I thought about that instance the last couple of weeks as I've been studying this passage. And I, be, and I began to think about, what if that happened today? What if that type of an event occurred in our society today? Some church leaders probably wouldn't even accept the jailer as a member. Or they would admit him into the membership with great reservation. Because we need to observe your conduct to see whether it conforms to our standards. Even in, in many circles, even if those standards, church, cannot be justified by the Word of God. Because believe it or not, there are fine Christians that live above reproach whose salvation has been doubted by self-appointed judges. Because those Christians were divorced or because those Christians had the audacity to be associated with the motion picture industry. And such judgment, church, is both unbiblical and inexcusable. And it arises really from demanding evidence of sanctification before crediting the believer with justification. We are not on probation with God to see whether or not we are useful. We are dead in Christ. We are not under the law. We are under grace, as we saw last time together. But that grace does not give us a license to sin. And so evidence does not require probation, but it is the necessary evidence of the Spirit's working in the life of the believer. Paul entered really the second phase of answering the antagonists in Rome with a series of statements about the true master of the believer's life. And I want to use a similar outline that I used from verses 1 through uh, 16. So number one, let's look at the antagonist. The antagonist. The Apostle Paul begins his second portion of Romans 6, just like he did the first. Look at verse 15, where Paul says this, What then? It's a little bit different phraseology here, but the same idea. Shall we sin? That's very similar to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? What did Paul say in verse 14 of Romans 6? Paul said in verse 14 of Romans 6, we are not under the law, but under what, church? Under grace. So therefore, Paul says, okay, 
Do we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Again, Paul is not addressing an actual person, but no doubt he's addressing really a train of thought or something he had heard someone say along the line, along that lines. And the conclusion that Paul is arguing again is this. If we are no longer under grace, and this is the antagonist's idea, if we are no longer under the law, therefore, I do not have to obey the law. And if grace covers all sins, then believers can do whatever they want to do, right? That's the attitude. Now, church, let me ask you a question. Are we under the law or are we under grace? We're under the covenant of grace, right? We're not under the law, we're under grace. Let me ask you this question. Stepping forward from that statement that we're not under the law, but under grace, do we have to obey the law? The answer is yes. We do not have to obey the law for salvation. But as a believer, there's a desire and I want to, to obey the law. You don't have to argue with a true born-again child of God, thou shalt not bear false witness. Do you? You don't have to argue with a true believer that you should not lie. You don't have to argue with a true believer that you, thou shalt not kill. You don't have to argue with a true believer that thou shalt not commit adultery. The desire is not there to do any of those things. And you don't have to argue with a true believer that, well, you know, I can do all those things because I'm under grace. And that was the attitude of the antagonist that Paul was answering in both verses 1 and 2 of Romans 6 and in verse 15 of Romans 6. It, it would really, church, be tantamount to living a life that was free of any and all moral restraint. Can you imagine a society without moral restraint? Well, we almost live in a society, don't we, of any moral restraint? But society does have a restraint. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. In fact, that, that, that instance with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, the Bible is very clear that God held back, God restrained Pharaoh from doing more wickedness to, to Abraham than he had, that he had performed. And so there is the restraining power of the Holy Spirit that's a work in our life. Can you just imagine society, as evil as it is, can you imagine it without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine, church, the church without the moral restraint of the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine the church and the level of unrighteousness that would exist in the church if God's people had the attitude, well, I can do anything I want because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Imagine the church of Jesus Christ that was free of moral restraint. And those people who are proponents of grace have always been accused of teaching that people have a license to sin. Will you, will you believe that people can just do what they want to do? No, we really don't believe that. Nothing could be farther from the truth, which is what Paul's arguing here. Because the legalists of Paul's day say that salvation is obtained by the law. And guess what? They may not go under the name Pharisee. They may not go under the name Scribe. They may not go under the name Sadducee. They may not go under the name of Rabbi. But listen, church, we still have those people in religion today that believe that salvation is obtained by the law. 
They're still with us. And so when Paul comes along and says that we're not under the law, they believe that Paul was teaching some type of unrestrained sinful life in the name of grace. And Paul's two answer, two questions really, he answered the same way. Verse 1, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because what did he say in chapter 5 verse 20? The more sin you've got, where sin abounded, grace didn't much more abound, right? And so he comes along and says, what, shall we, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because keep in mind that in the original Greek manuscripts, there were no chapter or verse divisions. It was just one long string of text. The chapter and verse divisions were not added until the 18th century. It was just one long line of text. And so Paul comes off and says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall, and then he says here in verse 14 and 15, Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Church, do you sin to get more grace? Do you sin because you're not under the law and you feel like that you've, you've got the freedom to do that? The doctrines of God's grace, church, is never a license to sin. And for the believer, a life of sin is never the desire. You see, the law would require perfection, wouldn't it? The law requires perfection. And because no one can keep it perfectly, not even the Pharisees, what the Pharisees did is they just changed the demands of the law. They just changed the standard. Well, it doesn't really mean that. It means this. And they always, for lack of a better word, they always dumbed it down a little bit to make it easier to live. You know, the law doesn't mean that to commit adultery means to look upon a woman in lust. It means the actual act of adultery, the physical intercourse that takes place. That's what you have to do in order to really commit this sin. And the law requires perfect obedience. What does grace, what does grace require? One thing, trust. Trust. Trust in the one who can do for you what you could not do for yourself. But what it does not give you, church, is a license to go out here and live like you want to because, hey, I'm in grace. And a person that has that attitude that I can go out here and I can do anything that I want to because God will forgive me because I'm under grace. Let me give you a solemn warning. You better be very careful about your eternity because with that attitude, it's a very good chance you've never been truly born again with that attitude. Because the attitude of someone that's truly been born again is they want to stay as far away from sin as they can possibly be. Not walk the line as close as they can and hope they don't fall over. And when they do, oh well, God will forgive me. So that was the antagonist. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And then number two, not only the antagonist, but let's look at the answer. Verse 15, Paul gives them the same answer that he gave them to the first. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? What's the answer? God forbid, make it a toy. May it never be said, perish the thought. Perish the thought that someone would actually say that I can continue in an unbroken relationship to sin to get more grace. Verse 1 and 2. Perish, and then Paul explains the fact that we're dead in sin and raised to newness of life. Verse 15. Shall we continue in sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Perish the thought. May it never be said that a Christian would have the attitude that, well, I can do whatever I want to do because I'm under grace. 
I can go out here and live like the devil. I can go out here and live a debauched life. And then claim grace at the end of the day. We're no better than the libertines of Calvin's day when we have that attitude, are we? That thought that they could live a debauched life of immorality and then come into the church and participate in the Lord's Supper. Calvin says, no, you're not. And he got him banished from his church over it. But he said, no, you're not. I will not give to, I will not give that which is holy to the profane. And to say that grace, church, is a license to sin is self-contradictory. It is a moral and spiritual absurdity. How could grace possibly justify continuing in sin? Because grace not only justifies, but listen, grace not only justifies, and sometimes we want to stop there. But grace not only justifies, but grace transforms. Grace transforms. When you, you and I got saved, we, there was not addition, was it? It was transformation. I did not add Jesus to my bag of tricks. A preacher was preaching to a bunch of, in California to a bunch of actors and actresses. The, I think it was the Screen Actors Guild that he was, that he was talking to, and he actually got an opportunity to preach the gospel uh, to them. And after he spoke, a man came up to him that, that was a, he, was a, he said he was a very handsome uh, Middle Eastern man, came up to him and he says, I want to talk to you about accepting Jesus Christ. And so this preacher sat down with him and talked to him for hours about the claims of Christ versus the claims of Allah and Muhammad, the Quran versus the Word of God. And the man bowed his head after some, some moments, bowed his head and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then afterwards... The preacher was very excited, as you can only imagine. One a Muslim has been converted to Christianity. And the young man looked at the preacher and says, Man, this is just wonderful right now. Now I not only had Muhammad, I also had Jesus. Well, that'll take the wind out of your sails as a preacher, won't it? No, 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 folks. Your God may not be Muhammad that you're trying to add to, but your God may be yourself. You don't add Jesus Christ. He's not addition to your old man. He is transformation. And a life that does not give evidence of moral and spiritual transformation gives no evidence of salvation. Paul says, shall we continue with sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. And so we see the antagonist and we see the answer. Number three, let's look at the axiom. Let's look at the axiom. Now, this is not forced alliteration. Just give me a moment. Axiom is a statement that's self-evident. In fact, it, it, it need, it's a statement that it needs no proof because it's so self-evident. The truth that Paul is about to give this church could not be any more obvious. Look at verse 16. Okay, so get the picture of what Paul is saying. Verse 14, we're not under the law but under grace, right? And we all resound, we, we all amen that with thunderous amens. We're not under the law, but under grace. But Paul says in verse 15, does that give us a license to sin? May it never be. Verse 16, know you not 
that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now notice the word in that text, the word yield. And it's the same word that's used for yield in the same Greek word, peristemi, that's used in verse 13. And when we say amen in verse 13, it means to be at the disposal. To be at the disposal of something. In verse 13, Paul tells them to stop making themselves to the disposal of sin. Stop yielding yourself to sin. Verse 13. Stop putting yourself at the disposal of sin. That every time sin comes knocking at the door, you open it wide and say, come on in. Paul says, stop doing that. And then verse 16, Paul tells them a very obvious fact. What is that? That the, that whatever or whoever you put yourself to the disposal of, you are their slave. Okay? And then he says, don't you get it? Denise, how many times have you looked at your students and said, don't you get it? A couple years ago, I was teaching Baptist Distinctives and we were teaching on biblical authority. And I looked at one of my students and I said, don't you get it? Then I smacked him around a few times. And then he got it. But Paul says, do you not know, which is an essence of way of saying, don't you get it? You do not sin to get more grace. You're dead to sin. You've been buried to it. And the same power that raised Christ now lives in you to give you power over the sin. But you do not use the fact that you are not under the law but under grace as a license to sin. You say, Pastor, I don't do that. But let me ask you a question. How many times have you headlong, very willingly gone right into that sinful action with the back of your mind saying, well, I'll just ask God for forgiveness later. When we have that attitude, when we continually have that attitude, then we've got the attitude that says, I can do this and just seek forgiveness because I'm under grace. And you do not use the fact that we're not under the law, but under grace is a license to sin. Because Paul says, don't you get this fact? He says, I want to drill this into your mind. This is so self-evident. I don't, I don't need to give you a plethora of verses to prove this because it's so self-evident that it doesn't need any proof that if you put yourself to the disposal of sin, then sin is your master and that is not who you are. And the phrase present yourself there that Paul uses indicates a willing choice. And this makes Paul's point all the more obvious. Because a slave is in total obedience to the one that he obeys, the one that he serves. And Paul's, this axiom is so self-evident, so such self-evident truth in regard to sanctification. In relation to God's will, a saved person has but two choices, okay? Either to sin, which is to disobey Christ, or of obedience, And a person's general pattern of living, okay, hear me clearly, a person's general pattern of living proves who his master is. If his life or her life is characterized by sin, 
which is opposed to the, to the will of God, then he's a slave to what? If his life is characterized by sin, again, folks, this is an axiom. It's self-evident. If his life is characterized by sin, then he is a slave to what? Sin. If his life is characterized by obedience, which reflects God's will, then he's a slave to what? He's a slave to God. And if a person's general characterization is a pattern of sin, look what he says again in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield or make yourself to the disposal of, you give yourself to. Don't you get it? Don't you understand that, the, that to whom ye give yourself over to as a servant and you obey it, his servant you are? He says, Paul says, don't you get it? You think that this grace gives you a license to sin, but understand that the one you give yourself to the disposal, that is the person that you are enslaved to. The end result of the first pattern, Paul says, is both what? Physical and spiritual death. Look what he says in verse 16. Whether of sin unto what? Death. However, the second slavery, he says in verse 16, of obedience unto what, church? Righteousness. Paul says you either sin as a general characterization of your life, and he says, oh yeah, by the way, if you do that, you're doomed to death. Because a Christian's life is not, the general characterization of a Christian's life is not that of sin. So Paul clearly says here, he's not saying you don't sin. He is saying that the general characterization and general pattern of your life is not that of continual sin. Listen, if somebody thinks that they could be a Christian and go out here and live like the devil, I, we're, this, this month's scripture verse is Ephesians 2, and the academy is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And harping on the fact, really, I'm, I'm kind of on a soapbox with this, aren't I, guys? Kind of on a soapbox with this about the fact that why would a believer want anything to do with, with the values that showed who they used to be? I'll never understand a person that claims to be a Christian Claims to be on the way to heaven. Claims that I love God. But they're constantly surrounding themselves and being involved with the value system that they used to represent, which is the value system of the world or Satan. And John says in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John says very clearly, you cannot love the world's system, you cannot love the world's values and claim one moment that you have the love of God living inside of you. Paul says you've got two choices here. You either sin, and if you do that, if that's the general pattern of your life, then you're doomed to death. Or you serve obedience, in which case you will move toward more righteousness. And that's why Paul says... At the end of verse 15 and at the end of verse and at the beginning of verse 2, may it never be said that that characterizes God's people's lives. Because, church, listen, that is not what you are as a child of God. And if we're ever going to get freedom over sin, which is what this, which, what this series is entitled, if we're ever going to get freedom over sin, it's going to begin when we understand our position in Christ and our position before our old sinful nature. It's not who we are. Christians do not put themselves as the pattern to the disposal of sin. 
Now, that doesn't say mean the Christians don't sin. But listen to me carefully. Christians do not put themselves as the normal pattern to the disposal of sin. Notice what Paul says to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his what? Created in Christ Jesus unto what? Which God hath before ordained. When is that? Before the foundation of the world. That we should walk in them. And the word them is antecedent to good works. The them, the pronoun them is the good works. What should we walk in? Good works. That's what we're supposed to walk in. And guess what, church? Our walking in good works was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The habitual, unrighteous life cannot be a Christian. The Bible teaches holiness. I spoke with a young man yesterday for about an hour. Really asking some difficult questions. Really wanted to bring him face to face with his relationship with Jesus Christ or lack thereof, whichever the case may be. And asking some difficult questions about the sinful patterns of his life. Because I wanted him to realize that the unrighteous life cannot be the life of a Christian. You don't pray a prayer, and I've gone, we, this, is old new, this is old territory for, for you guys, but you don't pray a prayer and go on about your merry way as everything always was. Because the unrighteous life, the habitual unrighteous life, cannot be that of a Christian. Matthew Henry said this, if we would know of which of these two families, either righteousness or sinfulness, if we would know of which of these two families we belong, we must inquire to which of these two masters you yield our obedience. That's the key. You want to know whether you're truly born again or not, folks? Where do you habitually yield your obedience? Paul says very clearly in verse 16 that if you continually yield your obedience to the sinful desires of the flesh, you are not a Christian. Because he said in verse 16, that leads to what? Death. Death. And the fact is that even though we kind of recoil at this notion, no human being is his own master, are you? We want to think that we live in a democracy. Everybody has a choice, right? You know, everybody has a vote. Unless it's politics, and it doesn't matter anymore, does it? Everybody's got a choice. We're a democracy. I'm my own master. But you know, folks, that's really a delusion, isn't it? You are mastered at whatever you make yourself at disposal to. I know people that are mastered by alcohol. They're mastered by drugs. They're mastered by pornography. They're mastered by sex. They're mastered by food. Whoever you make yourself a disposal to, that's who your master is. Peter writing to the first century church about false teachers says this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of what? Corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, 
Now you get what Peter's saying? Of whom, for of whom a man is overcome. That could be the same word as someone who's at the disposal of someone. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. When a person's general pattern of their life is that they're overcome by the sinful deeds of the flesh, that's who, that's who their master is. That's who their master is. And if the reality of a man's situation is honestly acknowledged, it becomes obvious that human beings are not independent creatures. You're either a master of your sinful pleasures, you're the master of your sinful desires, or you are mastered by God. And Matthew Henry says, you want to know which side of, if you want to know what team you're on, then find out who you give your yielding to. Find out who you give your allegiance to, and that'll tell you what team you're on. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. Right? It's impossibility. It's a moral and spiritual impossibility for you and I to think for one moment that we can serve Christ and serve our old sinful flesh at the same time. It's, an, it's a moral and spiritual impossibility for you and I to think that we can give ourselves to the disposal of sin and give ourselves to the disposal of God at the same time. Paul says that is an utter absurdity and a contradiction. No man can serve two masters because what's going to happen? Either he's going to hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And this is in a particular context, but the truth is applied universal. In this context, you cannot serve God and money. And the point is, church, is that a person cannot have two different opposing natures and serve them at the same time. He's either a slave of sin, which is what he is by nature, is his natural birth, or he's a slave to righteousness, which, which is what he becomes by the new birth. Paul, listen, Paul is not saying that the believer admires righteousness. Paul is not saying that the believer desires righteousness. He's not even saying that the believer practices righteousness, which of course they do. But that's not Paul's words. He is not saying that a believer ought to be a slave of righteousness. He is saying, church, that every believer by divine creation is made a slave of righteousness and cannot be anything else. It goes completely against the attitude of the believer to sin to get more grace. It goes completely against the attitude that from the, by the divine birth, that, that, nat, that supernatural work that's done in him by God. It goes completely against that nature to think that you know, I can sin all I want because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. It's completely contrary to what God is making us. Look what John says in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not what? Does not do what? Pretty clear, isn't it? Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. You say, Pastor, you don't commit sin every day of my life. Well, then you're not saved? No, that's not what John says. John says that whosoever, John is meaning that whosoever is born of God does not have an unbroken pattern of habitual sinful practices in their life. The person has truly been born of God does not continually, as a general characterizational pattern of their life, give themselves to the disposal of sin. For his sin remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. 
In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Okay, so John says, here's how you can tell. Whoever does, does not righteousness, not of God. What's John saying? If, your, if the characterization of your life is not the pattern of righteousness, what does John say, church? You're not of God. You're not of God. Two things that need to happen in people's lives if we're really going to get freedom over sin. Two things I believe as we close out tonight, two things I believe that has to happen in the life of the church if, if the members of the church are going to get victory over sin. Number one, there's a whole lot of people sitting in the pew that need to, that need to get born again. Now, I'm not talking about it in annual. I'm talking about the church worldwide. There's a whole lot of people sitting in the church. I'm talking about individual local churches around the world. I'm talking about Christianity in general. There's a whole lot of people sitting in the pews of churches that need to be born again. People can't, people sitting in the pews in churches today can't get victory over sin because they lack the power to get victory over sin because they've never truly been born again. Oh yeah, they prayed a prayer. They joined a church. They were probably baptized, but they've never truly been born again. And the second reason why I believe so many Christians in the church today struggle with sin is because they see themselves as I just can't do any better. This is just the way it is. Church, I'm here to tell you that is not who you are in Christ. You have been freed from the power and the penalty of that sin. Notice what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Why? To present you what, church? Holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. For the Christian, the life of unrighteousness of alienation from the from and hostility toward God is something in the past. The old sinful way cannot consume to characterize a true believer, folks. Obedience to God in righteous living is a certainty in the life of the truly justified believer. Don't 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 say that somebody is born again and there's not any imph of righteousness in their life in their life. Because Paul says, no, you're not. You're, you, you, verse 16, you're doing this, but it leads to death. Now, there could be temporary, there will be temporary unfaithfulness and sinful disobedience in the life of every true believer. And that may seem to dominate the Christian's life. But a true believer cannot continue indefinitely in disobedience. Because the spirit that lives inside them will draw them back in faith. Because that type of nature, church, is diametrically opposed to anything that has anything to do with their true nature in Christ. John says again, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we what? You're a liar. If you say you're a Christian, but yet you live in an unbroken pattern of sin, John says you are a liar. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a what? John didn't pull in punches. He says he's a liar too. If you say you're a believer, but you don't, but you don't obey God, he says you're a liar. And the truth is not in him. I think it's important for us to be reminded of the following, church. Christ does not come to imprison our lives. He does not come to improve our old self. Christ came to bury it, to put it to death.
so that we can be raised to walk in newness of life. Should we continue to sin to gain more grace, may it never be said. Should we assume that freedom from the law is, is a license to sin, may it never be said. Those two attitudes are completely antithetical to the life and the attitude of the believer because they are not who we are anymore. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.